Support for Sponsor Talk and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Sponsor Talk Podcast, where we interview some of the leading minds in the world of sponsorship marketing and discover the various ways and how brands interact with properties in sports, arts, film, music, you name it. I'm today's co-host, Jason Smith. You can follow me at SponsorshipJ on Twitter or on LinkedIn to keep engaged with our Sponsor Talk community. Hopefully today you learn something new about the industry and challenges you to keep thinking differently. All right, I want to introduce Allison Eddie Salazzo, Director of Club Business Development with the NHL. Um, Allison, thanks for coming on the pod today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, it's, it's fun because, you know, my, my day job, I work for Mountain America Credit Union. We sponsor the helmets for the Arizona Coyotes, and I thought it would be great to kind of find who is the person, the mastermind behind the helmets um, of all this. And, and everyone tells me it's you. So, uh, I'm excited to t- talk to you today about it. That's a stretch. We have a team in place. <laughs> There's no one mastermind, but I'm, I appreciate that. And it's been a fun couple months putting all our new revenue opportunities together. That's for sure. Well, before we get into talking about the helmet sponsorships for all the teams, which, um, which will be really fun to talk about. I wanted to talk about you. In your career, um, a lot of times people want to know how um, individuals get to certain areas of their career, and and I wanted to to just take some time to walk everyone through your your career path, and and so why don't we just start with telling uh, telling us about where you grew up and about your family and yeah, just anything about about your early days of life. Happy to. So I grew up in Winona, Minnesota, which is a a small to medium-sized town nestled on the Mississippi River in the southeastern part of the state. And it's one of those towns where everybody knows everyone. And there's a strong community, lots of history, great character. Um, I have a set of parents, like most people. And unlike most people, I have three siblings. So I'm the oldest of four. We were uh, going a, a million miles an hour in my household. We had so many sports practices, tournaments, and games at any given point in time. And with all of us being two years apart, we had friends coming in and out of the door at at all. It was Grand Central Station in our house. And a lot of that revolved around sports. And it's funny because so much of what we do today in our professional lives, the four of us revolves around sports, wellness, and, and active lifestyles. So it's something that hasn't really changed since my childhood. So what's it like being the oldest child? That's a loaded question. I know. It sounds I, like I'm, I'm letting you, I'm teeing you up. Like what, where do you want to start here, Allison? <laughs> I know it's either, you're either an older, you're the oldest sibling and you understand what I'm about to say, or the, you're the youngest and you're actually curious, but. I'm actually, so let's put this, I'm the youngest of four. So I'm the yeah. golden child. Is that exactly. accurate? Is that accurate? I would choose to be the, the first or the last personally. <laughs> and I enjoyed being the first or the oldest because there was a sense of responsibility and duty to, to be the shining example and do what's right because 
as I was told day in and day out, you're setting an example for your younger siblings. And I took that role really seriously. I, I guess I still do. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it was added pressure. You didn't get away with much, certainly a lot less than the youngest sibling did, but I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, so in high school, you, you played a lot of hockey, a lot of sports, period, like you just said. Um, and you work for the NHL. So you, uh, you did play hockey growing up in Minnesota, which I feel like everybody plays hockey in Minnesota. It's um, the state of hockey. So, so talk about your love of hockey and, and how that came about. So I started playing as a kid, as a young kid. Um, I played with the boys on the boys team until um, I was able to become a founding member of the girls hockey program. And it's certainly a lifestyle. I would say playing with the boys made me mentally tough, probably physically tough too, and shaped me into watching it with like your, with your, with your dad or something. And so you're like, dad, I want to play hockey. Or how did you just all of a sudden go, Hey, I want to play with the boys. Let's go. Let's do this. I don't know if my younger brother started playing or if we lived on a, a lake. So when it froze over, it was pretty easy to lace him up and, and grab yeah. a stick. So in generally hockey is really prevalent in Minnesota. So it was um, not necessarily for girls at the time, but, and women, but certainly for boys. And I was, I was not shy. I was no stranger to new experiences. So I said, yeah, let's go. Having the opportunity to be a part of the first girls team, which is still in place, that whole girls program made me realize that there's no limit. There's nothing you, you can't do, regardless of gender, age, background. Um, the sky's the limit. And that was a pretty powerful lesson to learn as a, as a young girl. Again, we just talked about having influence on, on siblings, right? But having influence outside of that too, right? And people looking up to someone who's doing something outside of the realm, which hockey's more of a a male dominated sport, right? And here you are kind of inserting yourself in and being like, it doesn't matter. I can do this too. I think there's, there's a lot of impact that you can have on, on people by stretching yourself and doing something outside of yourself and what other people do too, or what they perceive that you should be doing from high school. Um, you, you went to, you went to Wisconsin, um, for, for school. Why, why did you decide to go to Wisconsin? Well, while sports is certainly a part of my life, academics in my household was and is still important. Um, so Wisconsin's an academic powerhouse. It is the 13th best public school in the United States. And I wanted to get that sort of top-notch education. So I guess I should also say early on, I understood regardless of how much fun and how much success um, I had on the ice or on the field, the long-term, in the long-term, the biggest opportunities were going to be for me off the ice or off the field. So Wisconsin gave me the opportunity to focus on building the skill sets and having and acquiring the knowledge that I needed to do the job that I do today. Not to mention go to some great football games and have a little fun and develop all that character uh, while I was at it. That's what I was going to ask you. I was like, there's also the sporting side of it too, right? They're actually pretty, they're pretty decent uh, sports program as well, but no, that's, that's awesome. And um, you, you, and you played a lot of sports there too, just from, from an intramural standpoint, you're on the soccer team, volleyball, hockey, and flag football. They were all different seasons, right? There, they, most, most of the time. For the most, for the most part. <laughs> right. Um, most were, those, were, you, were you playing with the boys there too, or did they have a women's hockey and, um, 
and a women's flag football too or were you some co-ed some with the boys too there i played hockey with the boys there actually um we had a great team that was a ton of fun and then the rest were co-ed or women's and really relaxed there wasn't you know that was the first time i was able i'm a competitive competitive spirit but the first time i was able to take it a little bit less seriously. And that was a whole new chapter in my life too. And a ton of fun. I know you played college athletics and a lot of my friends did. And I had an opportunity to just not at Wisconsin. So this was a new fun chapter. And I would say it's a, for anybody who goes to a big school, we had 30,000 plus undergraduates there with a ton of graduate programs. Yeah. You need to dig deeper and find those smaller communities through intramural sports or through student council, um, through associations, so that you have those relationships and you leave college not feeling like a number, but part of something bigger. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Those relationships are, they carry on for a lifetime. In addition to sports, you, you actually were able to gain a ton. I was actually, as I was looking at, at your experience, you, you gained a lot of really great um, experience even before, before you graduated. So I'm just gonna list off a few of them here. So you, you did public relations for, for a Bauer hockey um, and then business development for the Miami Dolphins um, at one point for, for a few months there. You did digital media with the NHL as well as, as an internship. And, um, and then you did some sponsorship activation for Canucks Sports Properties right before graduation as well, too. So those are, those are some great resume builders coming out, of, coming out of college. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, like how, how did you get those opportunities? How did you, how, how did you make connections to, to find those? Cause I know a lot of, a lot of people who are in, in school right now that want to crack into sports, uh, this is the challenge that they face is how do I get some of that experience coming out? So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mailed my physical resume and cover letter to, I don't know, 50 sports organizations and heard back from very few, but then followed up with phone calls and emails because it's hard, it's difficult to, to break into the sports industry. So I found some success through all of those modes of communication, right? Stayed in touch, but the, the real helping hand, I should say, or foray into sports came from a contact of a contact, right? Everybody knows someone that is, that touches the world of sports. Someone knows somebody who knows somebody. Right. In the sports industry. <laughs> exactly. And you you start to pinpoint who that person is. You do your research and you ask and say, patient, can you introduce me? Can I get a chance to take them out for coffee for lunch? And that happened. And um, the rest kind of builds from there because once you start, once you have the opportunity to work in a front office or for a brand that touches sports, your world opens up. You have more contacts who know more people. And if you continue to invest in those relationships and you focus on being a good at your job, but a good human, the opportunities are endless. I don't mean to say endless, but they grow exponentially from there. So what you actually didn't mention is that, and I, because I don't have this listed in my bio or LinkedIn anywhere, is my first summer I backpacked Europe with my best friends out of college. I said, I'm going to pedal to the metal for every summer after, after my freshman year, but I want to travel the world and see it and do it right. So we spent months overseas and going to 15 different countries. And that was just as character building in a different way for postgraduate life. After that, um, Bauer Nike Hockey working in PR allowed me to understand how to position a product or service. The Miami Dolphins business development allowed me to learn how to monetize sports products and services. 
digital media at the NHL allowed me to understand how to distribute sports content and the product and service. And then Canucks and sponsor activation, I learned how to essentially integrate everything that we just talked about with larger entities in the community at whole. And that's kind of the full suite of experiences that I feel extremely blessed to have worked towards and certainly spent a lot of time and effort working towards, but really set me up well for postgraduate degree or sorry, postgraduate life, even though I didn't have a sports business degree because it wasn't offered at Wisconsin. Well, first of all, we could probably do a whole podcast about your month, your multiple month backpacking uh, excursion overseas, but we won't get into that today. <clears throat> and maybe whoever's listening, they can reach out to you individually and, and we could talk <laughs> about that offline because I'm actually super intrigued by that. But what, what, at what point did you decide that you actually wanted to go into sports? Pretty early on. I had a couple good role models that I watched and followed um, that made a living in sports. And I thought, this is pretty neat. Teamwork, everything that sports symbolizes is intrinsic to who I am. So it was probably, I didn't have an aha moment. Some people do, but I would say end of high school, early, early college. I said, this is, I'm putting all my eggs in in this basket because it's going to make me happy. And um, it resonates really well. And that's a gift you give yourself is to wake up every day, liking what you do. And this seemed like a surefire way to make sure I was doing that. You set yourself up for after after graduation um, with the Miami Dolphins. Talk about that first job. What was that like? I'll go, this is a special one. This, I do have like a breakthrough moment. Some people have a breakthrough in sports moment. I'll go a little deeper on the Dolphins um, internship, which then led to a full-time position. I was actually hosting spring break at my grandparents' condominium in on the coast of Georgia, when I got a a response to an email and follow-up email I sent about some internships, offering the opportunity to interview for the Miami Dolphins and coincidentally, two days later, the Florida Panthers. I'm in Georgia at my grandparents' condominium with five friends. And I said, you know what? I'm taking the money I saved for spring break. You guys stay here, don't do anything. And I'm I'm gonna buy a suit and buy a Greyhound bus ticket and seize the opportunity. So I did, that wasn't a short bus ride. It was an interesting experience, but I got to Miami. I changed into my business suit. I bought off the rack in a Starbucks bathroom, found a cab, which by the way, before rideshare was not easy and showed up at the arena ready to go. And I, I got an, I got some offers. Nowhere to and change. Is, you just went into the, like into, into the Greyhound station bathroom, changed up and, and away you went at that point. I went to Starbucks. So in my oh, opinion, Starbucks. it was, a, yeah, Starbucks. It was yeah. a leg up. Okay. Give me a okay. little bit of credit okay. in class you. here. <laughs> but this it was is, a yeah. Starbucks in the Greyhound station or something. Right? <laughs> you know? Not far from. That's, that's awesome though. So, so, I mean, literally it was like, okay, I'm going to make this happen. We're getting a suit. We're hopping on a bus. We're going down to Miami from Georgia and, and you go into this interview and what's the interview like? Not easy because that was an experience in and of itself that I wanted to make sure I capitalized on. Knowing how to position yourself in interview as a 19-year-old with a 50-year-old without much any sports experience is something I needed to get better at, and I knew that, and that was invaluable. But fortunately, I interviewed with and eventually worked for great people. And so the interview was conversational. We clicked right away on the same page, and it was 
it wasn't easy, but it felt easy because it was such a good fit. That's, and, that's awesome. And what you were a coordinator. I was a summer intern working on evaluating and analyzing revenue lines for merch tickets, oh, um, okay. any, anything for the team at that point. So okay. I should say this, the bus, the Greyhound bus set me up for um, the internship. And then after I graduated, I had the opportunity to return full time. The point is, is the, the first job came from saying yes and raising my hand when a time, at a time when it would have been very easy to say, no, I can't make this work. Um, so the takeaway there that I learned early on and pass along to people breaking through in the sports industry is say yes, just go. Yeah. And the relationship that you had from the internship there and getting that internship led you to, to getting, getting the full-time, full-time job. Right. Um, I actually came back in a slightly separate group. So this was revenue, um, more COO, CRO hybrid department. And then yep. I came back to work in the partnership department who I, I did a bunch of projects for towards the end of, of the, you know, time I spent there that summer, which is another reason just to say yes, because you never know if you make time to contribute to other departments, um, success, there could be a door open there too. So that was another lesson. And that's how I started in partnerships. So I knew I wanted to work on the revenue side, but I was thrilled to come back on the partnership activation and fulfillment side full-time um, working for incredible people there too. Chris Overholt and Perry Bassett were the two that I worked for that summer. I still work with Daniil Sargent and, and several others who are part of our, our sports industry to this day. And they taught me a lot about what I still do today um, and use, and you probably, you know, have a similar foundation and use it day in and day out. And it's a great opportunity to learn that at stage one of your career. Yeah. And then after the Dolphins, you, you spent about five years there um, after you graduated with the Dolphins and, and you traveled across the country to San Diego. Um, you can't get to probably two separate sides of the country of uh, Miami and San Diego, right? <laughs> um, southeast to Southwest. But um, why did you make that move? It was a hard decision, very hard decision to make because at the time we were working for a tight-knit group. Jim Rushton was the CRO and he provided me with a lot of growth opportunity, gave me ownership and agency over the projects I had. But essentially an opportunity came up to go to San Diego um, through the, the, the Dolphins CEO. So the Dolphins CEO at the time accepted the president and CEO role of the Padres. And he took a group of individuals at the Dolphins with him to the Padres. And the role he created and needed me for out there was an experience expansion on skill sets that I knew I needed as a well-rounded professional. It was to basically do the operation and revenue consultation and sales foundation that I built at the Dolphins, but invest that in the lifeblood of the, the franchise, which is fans and community. So it was developing and fine-tuning those skills in a different way out there. And Because it was I a completely different opportunity. You went from the sponsorship side to the community fan engagement side, which they, they, they go hand in hand, right? I mean, it's not like they're totally separate, but your experience that you had on the sponsorship side can definitely help on this community outreach and, and involvement side. And, and plus, in, in, in my personal opinion, I think sponsorships, every sponsorship program and every partner should have some sort of a community element in, into their partnership because that, that's why you do it. You're, you're involved in the community. You sponsor a team, you sponsor an organization. 
so that you can do good in the community that you live in. Yeah, you need to, you need to actually turn business. There, there needs to be some, some ROI there. But at the same time, you need to give back. And when you give back, that comes back tenfold. Is that what, is that what they were having you do? Would you work with a lot of the, with the sponsorship department and finding ways to combine with those brands and the Padres to give back to the San Diego community? Yes. Not to mention going deeper and wider on our donations and contributions to the larger community and all of the nonprofits that were doing excellent work in the community. So it was, it was a dynamic position and I learned how to do a lot of different things, but certainly bridging the gap between sponsorship and, and charitable CSR initiatives, rolling out net new initiatives that benefited fans, franchise, community, checked all three of those boxes equally. And then, um, being an ambassador in the community on behalf of the franchise, because as you know, working for a team and now for a, a brand, you're responsible if you are, if it's in your company's DNA to engage with the community, be an active member of the community. Like I strongly believe that most teams have a commitment that they make to their immediate and regional community to, to give back. And that's an important part. And you, and you do, like you said, if you give, a certain amount of your time and resources, you get that back tenfold. What's the difference between working for an NFL team versus a, an MLB team? I'm not sure I could, I honestly feel like there's more similarities than there are differences, yeah. right? Everybody's trying to put a winning team on the field and you're working towards that goal day in and day out. That's probably number one, even for front offices, especially if you're really integrated with the baseball or football operations group, you're then trying to put the, you know, an unmatched, unparalleled entertainment value on coming to a live sporting event. So you're certainly in, a, in the events business, regardless of what league you're in. And then you've got a community engagement piece where you're trying to be good stewards to the, to the larger community and all of the fans and citizens in that region. So that that's the same between NFL and NBA and, um, yeah. MLB. Uh, absolutely. I, I guess one of the biggest differences, I mean, the thing that kind of comes to my mind is the amount of games played, right? In preparation. But you look at it and you go uh, 160 plus games versus 16, right? <laughs> the, the atmosphere is different. There's definitely. A, there's, a different, there's a difference between that, right? And plus the time of year too, through the summer versus versus during the uh, the fall and winter too. No question. That's, a, that's an interesting difference. The intensity around game day is different between baseball and football. Sure. Well, we would test things in baseball games. Let's roll this. Let's do a soft launch, you know, at the Cardinals series. Let's, let's test this here. We got a hundred more. We can fine tune it. <laughs> right. And then for, for at NFL, at the Dolphins, it was like, okay, we will try this at training camp. Maybe if we're lucky, otherwise it's, we've got one shot to get it right. So let's have, you know, six prep meetings because we're in front of a, 60,000 people every game and we only have one game to get this right and and that translates to some of the play on the field too it's yeah. there's just there's more intensity around around game day no question about it so then you you uh, you move back to the east coast and take the position which you hold today right with with the NHL and and why don't you tell people about what you do for the NHL now sure i am focused on probably five main areas day in and day out that's new asset development um, so constantly looking for and executing, rolling out um, 
new revenue generating assets within partnership and revenue streams at the clubs. So that's league wide across our soon to be 32 markets. We've got, I spend a lot of time on strategy and data analytics. We have a great team in our group within our finance um, department that um, collects and organizes and helps manage a bunch of really great revenue information and data. So then synthesizing that and giving it back to the teams in different dashboards and graphs and charts that they can use to benchmark against themselves in like clubs is, is big. Um, certainly sales and revenue generation going from league to club and then club to league is, is a, so some of our league partners who want to expand in the club markets is a focus of mine. I spend a lot of time there and then vice versa. If a team partner wants to spend at the league level, then we, you know, we bring them into the fold and, and have those NHL family conversations. Um, best practice sharing. There's so many similarities between NHL and team markets. Um, so making sure we're communicating and sharing ideas and learnings, I spend a ton of time on. And, and then last but not least, communication. So making sure there's a conduit between league and club and club and league and club and club. And we're all communicating in it. That's been extremely important in the last 12 months. How often are you, I mean, there's a lot of teams. How often are you communicating with, with all these different teams? I mean, is it a you have kind of a standing call with all of them? Do you, do you reach out to them individually? Uh, what, how, how does that, how does that work? How do you all work of the all? above, you know, in this business, a lot of things are time sensitive. And yeah. so it's, it varies, but there's certainly a lot of communication taking place at any given point in time from my yeah. remote office. Well, COVID obviously prompted the discussions for, for sponsors receiving exposure on team helmets um, this year. So uh, what type of discussions have been had over the years about this specific asset. Was this being discussed prior to the pandemic of an, as, a, as a possibility? I think I mentioned this first. I'm, we're constantly looking at new revenue opportunities. We spend time weekly discussing the pros and cons and new asset possibilities, what we're seeing in other sports leagues internationally. It's a constant conversation. So yeah, while COVID perhaps accelerated the asset's debut, We've always been evaluating what's monetizable across the league while maintaining the integrity of our playing environment. And you, you had to move pretty quick on this, on this asset um, as a league. What, what was, how did you identify that this needed to happen now um, and get it approved and, in a, and get it out to the teams and, and, and all of that? What, what was that process like when it was like, hey, we, we need to look, look at doing this and we need to move fast? Yeah, Keith Locktell is, uh, he's our chief revenue officer. He, he knows how to move fast. So I give a lot of credit to him. We were deliberating around, you know, top solutions, top revenue assets for, for months. And then this happened, this being the pandemic, pandemic. COVID-19, that small thing. Um, and so we got together and said, let's organize our top best solutions. Let's look at the projected revenue opportunity of each. Right, the process continues. We looked at the operational requirements for each, measured the value delivered. We brought in third parties. We tweaked the offering to make it more dynamic, knowing that many teams had upwards of 50 to 75 significant partnership spends to make good on and or retain mm -hmm. due to a shortened season and limited fan capacity. Um, we tightened up the unique selling points and the value proposition and took it to the top and to Gary and the board of governor, Gary Bettman, our commissioner and deputy, deputy commissioner, 
Bill Daly's credit alongside the Board of Governors, they were extremely supportive. They have an entrepreneurial spirit and said, we got to do what it takes to test, test and learn during this time and turn this adversity into an opportunity. And how much revenue do you feel like this will, this will save the teams by, allow, by allowing this, this asset to be used? Yeah, this year, just for the asset alone, teams are averaging over a million dollars in revenue retained and, and or generated because some teams have used it to retain value from significant naming rights partners and others have used it to generate new revenue. Um, one interesting statistic I'll say is 44% of the partners you see on helmets are not naming rights partnerships. They're other founding level partnerships that have significant spends of the team. So that, that speaks to the value that teams are building in their local markets above and beyond your traditional naming rights value. And, and when you were looking at the value of this asset, like what, what did you go through there? Did you have a third party come in to do evaluation on it? What, how did you identify what that value is for the, for the helmet? The league helped our clubs create a baseline value through the help of our research and insights partner, Wasserman. So Wasserman said, let's take a look at all 56 game um, local home and away ratings. We'll identify the share of voice. We'll take a look at the clarity of the logo, the size of the logo, and we'll come up with a value that is appropriate for each team, right? So we did use a third-party measurement company and then teams adapted that figure to their own markets and value proposition. Was there any sort of creativity that you saw with the helmet sponsorships that are maybe unique that you want to share? Yeah, that's the fun part. After you roll out a new asset, it's like, how are teams amplifying this? How are they, how are brands amplifying this and taking advantage of, of their new asset? Um, I, should, I should point out, there are 13 different types of helmets in the NHL. So wow. it took a lot of creativity just to get a standardized, standard size look and feel um, decal on each of the different helmets. So I give a lot of credit to our equipment team. Um, but some, some examples uh, include asking star players to amplify or announce the helmet partner on their social channels. Um, we saw a lot of fun and we have continued, we continue to see a lot of fun fan facing campaigns and promotions being rolled out with the chance to win signed helmets from captains or donate helmets to frontline heroes. During the pandemic, we saw a lot of um, organic and new press and PR around some of the new established partnerships. We've seen um, scoreboard and in arena assets that, like in baseball, follow the puck, but instead it's a branded helmet. We've yeah. seen mascots wearing the new branded helmet. Um, there's a ton of intentional content capture and positioning that's now taken place so that there's a long tail of content value that's delivered and social and digital above and beyond just the broadcast that takes place for those 60 minutes or so. Through this process, what have you learned? How to be more dynamic and flexible because things change on a regular basis. Creativity is paramount during times like this. So how do you understand that with adversity comes an opportunity and while you have to move fast and you have to be strategic and all of the things that we do on a regular basis and times are tough. If you push through and you, you push a little harder and you try new things, a lot of good will come from it. And we've certainly seen that to be the case with these new assets and, 
and hopefully some will live on or we'll at least be able to say we've recouped over $100 million um, in a short one season period across our, our club markets. Which is amazing to be able to recoup that. I mean, that's huge for not only the teams, but for the league too, right? To be able to recoup that kind of, that kind of money in, in the pandemic. And really, we, we t- touched about it earlier, you, you're in contact with all the teams that you got to work with. What challenges were there of really implementing this out to all of these teams and communicating what you can and can't do and, and what, what this whole thing looks like? What type of challenges did you have to balance with that? Yeah. Mostly it's a team of, of individuals at the NHL and a team of people at the clubs who had to work together remotely in many cases in constant communication, right? So if a team had a question that came to me, I would add four more people to the email thread just to sign off on making sure it was in line with our COVID protocols or health and safety protocols or hockey operations protocols. And last, certainly not least, you know, your partnership revenue guidelines and policy, which govern the asset itself. That's the way I'll put it is just, it took a lot of communication and, and certainly a lot of teamwork. It was a team effort through and through and still continues to be as things shift on a regular basis because of COVID and and other season impacts like welcoming fans back into the arena, which is a great thing. Um, All of those have ripple effects that impact other assets or other parts of your game day experience. And you, you also, uh, you also have developed uh, other opportunities for the teams to recoup revenue or gain additional revenue with some, specific assets that you've worked with the teams on. Do you want to talk about any of those? You know, I want to. So the uh, slot virtual, I just, I just set you up. You did. No, it's great because it's been a lot of work, but so, and something we're proud of because it's, it's new and exciting. And anytime you can roll out something new in a league role or team team role, and especially for marketers in our industry and our discipline, you learn a lot and you, you gain insights for the future. So Certainly happy that we got to work with our partner, SMT, to launch Blue Line Slot Virtual. So traditionally, there are essentially logos in the ice, traditionally during a non-regular yeah. season, mm-hmm. that are reserved for NHL institutional messaging around face-off or playoffs or our tentpole events. We decided to forego those this year, keep the ice clean, and virtually project you know, sizable graphics, logo-branded graphics, um, a lot parallel to both blue lines. Thanks to SMT, those are extremely clear. They're crisp. They are not affected by player movement. They, they stay in place. Um, they rotate for about, they run for about three minutes and rotate about six times per period for a total of 18 per game and have been really well received from esteemed marketers and decision makers in our, in our league. Yeah, they're definitely impactful, right? I mean, to be able to have your brand, I mean, the dashboards are great, you know, and and all and and even the in ice logos are great, but even those come across clear because as the ice gets carved up a little bit, you know, it starts to blur the logo a little bit those in ice ones, but those virtual ones stay crisp the entire time. They do. And when you're scanning from the game moves fast as you know so when you're scanning from the offensive zone to the defensive zone you see that pair of logos the entire way um, which is a pretty strong branding opportunity 
you do you want to talk about any yeah. of the because i think you did some some tarp seat, tarp seat covers and things like that and you want to talk about those let's keep no. going leading edge wrap is you keep going here <laughs> leading, we also implemented leading edge wrap which is a about a foot or 12 inch decal that lines the top of the dasher boards along the glass yeah. along the perimeter of the ice um, we gave we made this dynamic similar to slot virtual and that you can rotate or feature multiple partners at a time up to two at a time they can be arranged you know one after the other or more like a press backdrop and be organized in different zones teams have monetize those you see them really clearly in the tight shots that are so common in our game um, whenever there's a, an incredible goalie save it's really easy to see that Chris leading edge wrap decal um, and it's a it's a really nice asset when there aren't any fans in the stands because the point of view from the seats you know is not a factor so we've enjoyed much success with the leading edge wrap we've also implemented the tarp seat covers, which you've seen in other sports. Um, this is highly valuable in the NHL because of our sight lines. So every team's broadcast sight lines are a bit different, but we allowed teams to cover existing seat sections with tarps up to 12. Um, there is There are guidelines around how big the logo can be and can, in coordination with the size of the tarp. The tarps need to be a certain type of fabric and tightness and color to ensure they're not distracting to the hockey players on the ice. But um, we have a professional look and feel in all of the arenas. And um, it's also dynamic because as fans welcome, or sorry, as teams welcome fans back into the arenas, they're able to move this down to the lower rows of the section and still maintain that high impact branding opportunity that we see from covering the entire TARP section. Well, and that media visibility is huge, right? To be able to implement that and get some visit visibility because even even if there is limited fans, that's where a lot of the value is going to have to come from is in some cases increased viewership on TV. Yeah, people people can't get into the into the uh to the stadiums in some in some markets, zero fans, and in some it's 25-30% capacity. Yeah, no that's that's exactly right. We speaking of that, the signage that we usually have behind the bench. We allowed teams to expand um, at the early parts of the season up to five feet, which is a, a big, a much bigger space than we had before. And with all the camera shots and broadcast angles that were showing the bench and the players on the bench and the coach reactions, that saw a ton of value. But unfortunately, we had to remove um, some of the plexiglass and dividers yeah. behind the bench due to COVID protocols to create more airflow. And the ingenuity we saw at the club level after that announcement came to create their own newly reformed bench signage or expanded bench signage is a testament to all the hard work and creativity that's taking place in the league right now. Are there other ways that you work with, with the teams like for during the season or in the playoffs or anything like that? What's, what's, what's your involvement as you, as you go through the season and then into playoffs? Yeah, so we'll see teams start to come to us with playoff opportunities for some of the league partners that they're currently aligned with or working with. Um, so I'll play a big role in that. We'll start to see how teams are packaging new these new assets in the playoffs and because they have rights to continue to use them in the playoffs for select assets we just talked about. Um, we'll begin renewal conversations, talk about best practices, 
Um, lots of forecasting for the 21-22 season. It's a unique time and an unprecedented time. Yeah. So we'll start to see a lot of our conversations shift, one-on-one -on -one conversations. This isn't a league-wide discussion, but start to talk a little bit about how to forecast properly with the partnership leads at each team or revenue leads um, and providing data in which is helpful for that exercise. And then um, as we constantly try to modernize the fan experience, we're rolling out new technology, making sure connectivity is, is at its peak um, so that when and if fans, when fans are welcomed back into the arena, ideally, you know, by playoffs or next season, we have a accelerated enhanced fan experience, like best in class fan experience that we will be able to offer largely in part because we were dark for a little while and we had the time to make some improvements. Well, thanks so much. Allison for coming on the podcast today. Um, I just have a few questions I'd like to ask my guests when they, when they, when they come on, what makes you get up in the morning and do what you do? People yeah. contributing towards a sport. I love relationships mean everything, right? They do. They make it fun. We're not curing cancer here. Yeah. Um, certainly there's a lot of serious discussions that take place and we all take our roles very seriously, but there's an element of fun. That's why we work in sports and entertainment. And so to maintain that optimism and lightness in your relationships is something I live for and thoroughly enjoy. Yeah. And then just contributing to something larger and more meaningful. And what do you feel like the future holds for the NHL? Well, that's a question for Commissioner Bettman. Primarily, I can say that I am really proud of the work the clubs have been doing this season and will continue to do alongside the league in the Stanley Cup playoffs, which will begin in May of this year. We have a lot of exciting innovation initiatives that will roll out in the next couple months, not to mention the introduction of our 32nd franchise, the Seattle Kraken, this fall. So keep an eye on us in the next few months. Allison, thanks again for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Jason. A lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us at Sponsor Talk on Twitter and at the Sponsorship Space on LinkedIn and join our community if you're interested in learning more. Thanks and have a great day.